Daniel Williamson, good evening. Buenos tardes. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Especially because it's the middle of February, it's really cold, and I want to be taken on a kind of... Well, uh, Alex Horn once used the term about Britney Spears, and he did use it lovingly, about a mental safari. So when you take a holiday okay. from your own mind. I hope that comes out well. But you've, you're going to take me on a mental safari for the next hour uh, about a club okay, I know I'll... so little about that I'm, I would love to read your book, Blue and Gold Passion. When did you get your passion for the blue and gold? I've, I've been following the club sort of on and off for probably 20-odd years. I remember, first of all, seeing Bocca on programs like Transworld Sport on Channel 4, which was back in the 90s, you know, obviously before the YouTube era where, you know, you could watch anyone anywhere, anytime. Um, we had to kind of wait for those kind of shows to see 30-second glimpses of Argentinian football. And I, I was just always fascinated by it, you know, the colour, the ticker tape on the pitch. And um, Bocca, Bocca struck me first with the... The blue and gold colours, which are iconic, you know, the stadium La Bombonera, which is, you know, equally as iconic. And then, you know, the likes of Tevez was he was quite a big player. He came to he came to Manchester United in two thousand and was it two thousand and six, if I remember rightly. Oh no, I, I spoke. You should listen to my chat with Daniel Hurley, um, your fellow pitch author, who. Um, oh, West Ham. He wrote a book about West Ham. He went to he? West Ham, but can you tell me? Whom he joined Manchester United from? Well, I mean, it was from West Ham, but there were, there were all the issues, weren't there, with the um, third-party ownership? Yeah, so, officially, so, uh, he was on loan from... Corinthians? No, he was effectively on loan from the marketing agency that owned him. He wasn't at a club, he was unattached. And so they, the yeah, paperwork... Very, very meant messy. That, yeah, it was, it was... Well, with a Y... Um, I'm sure we'll talk about Messi with an eye, but it was just unbelievable to read The Greatest Escape, that story about Tevez, and then everyone knew about him, uh, and then he went to Man United. Tevez is one of these people. So you you got into Boca around that time, the mid-2000s? Yeah, and then I went to um, I went to South America in 2008, so um, went to a Boca game, and yeah, just just been kind of following the club on and off ever since. I mean, I'm not... I've said it before in, in when I've been doing these kind of podcasts that... I wouldn't claim to be a, a Boca fanatic. Um, I think that would be unfair to the, the people who really are. But, you know, I do follow the club keenly and interested enough to, to actually sit down and spend a year of my life writing this book. Did you go to pitch with the idea? Yes, I did. Um, it popped in my head. This, the, the idea for the book came into my head around about the 2018 Copa Libertadores final against River Plate. I don't know if you remember it. The one Very well. December. It was what a yeah. saga. We'll talk about it during this hour. Yeah, December 2018. So around about that time, I was writing for these football times. One of my colleagues there had a book published by Pitch. So that kind of inspired me to, to want to do a book. And then as the games were going on against River Plate and the whole saga was unfolding, I went on Amazon to have a look and see if there's anything out there in English about Boca, Boca, uh, Boca Juniors. And um, there was basically nothing out there on Amazon in English. So I decided that, you know, put two and two together, I want to write a book, there's a big gap in the market, and then um, I went to pitch and gladly they accepted. Aren't they great? I mean, they'd once turned a pitch from me down, but I'll, I'll let you in for a secret. My pitch was, it's about nothing and everything, and they told me to go away and never come back. 
that's where I would have read it, I'm sure. Oh, well, it's it's out now, A Modern Guide to Modern Football, £3 on Kindle. And the point of this football library is to actually talk to people who have had the books published. Uh, a History of Boca Juniors, Blue and Gold Passion, has been out for about six months. Yeah, it came out in September. I think it was the 7th of September. So, um, yeah, happy with how it's going. Um, good. You know, it, it started off well and then I had the Christmas rush as well, so that was good. Um, and, yeah, just it's obviously starting to tail off a bit now after six months, but I think that's quite normal. Yep, unless you slash it to about two quid. You can get it on your ebook from a well-known website, the Rainforest one, that we try not to mention just because we know about them. But nine ninety nine. but if it retails at sixteen ninety nine, and I, 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 we have talked about pitch because I've talked to about 15 other writers who are pitch writers. It is dedicated to football stories. In fact, I don't know if you get When Saturday Comes, but the latest When Saturday Comes um, praised the fact that other publishing companies would not accept a book about East German football but pitch do. Uh, have you read any other pitch titles that you recommend to the audience? Yeah, I mean, I've, 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 I was the reason why I went to pitch first was just because I was a huge fan of their books. Um, I've read, I've read probably you know probably a dozen pitch books in my lifetime, and and yeah, that's 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 where I got the the idea from because because of that exact reason, the fact that they publish books from all different kinds of sports, you know, all different kind of clubs that. Or, or you know topics that most other publishers would deem to be too niche. Just talking before I mentioned before about my my colleague that that had a book published. Yes, that please was Stephen name Scrag. him. Stephen Scrag. I don't know if you've had him on. Um, he's no. Made two books now. He's he's a, he's a good talker, so he, he'd make a good guest. And um, I've read his books, and um, yeah, they're brilliant. And but I've also read a lot of I read a lot of boxing books as well um, on pitch. They they do quite a lot of boxing books, and they're always good. Um, read one by a guy called Tris Dixon called The Road to Nowhere, where he basically, this was 20-odd years ago, just as he was starting out in his journalism career, if you like, he went to America and he just went around on a Greyhound bus interviewing all these old fighters that everyone else had forgotten about. And it's just a really interesting story. And, yeah, Pitch have got, Pitch have got loads of great titles coming out, like left, right and centre. It's hard, it's hard to keep up with them sometimes. It's almost impossible. Can I just affirm that I have not been paid by Pitch Publishing, but I do have several of their books. I'm hopeful to talk to Paul Bishop, who has written a great memoir come history of Watford Football Club, uh, which being my team, it's great to have that on board. Um, I've spoken to, it's probably about one in eight of these interviews have been Pitch authors, Paul and Jane Camelin. Um, The process of writing the book, when was the draft delivered and then when was the second draft delivered? The, the final the final manuscript was delivered in June last year. So um, I got the go ahead while I was on my honeymoon, actually, oh, in July time. the year the year before. Yeah, so that would have been July twenty nineteen. I'm just trying to sort of trying trying to go back. July twenty nineteen, I got the go ahead, and then yeah, June twenty twenty was when I actually submitted the book. So it was that eleven month period, and you know, the two or three months before the final submission date were the you know the it kind of all came to a head and it was quite hectic really you know sending it to the sending it to them and then you'd get it back it'd go through a sort of edit, editing process it'd go through a proofreading process and um, you know they'd send it back and you'd have to make a few tweaks etc so quite um quite hectic those last few few months but then you know once once you got the go ahead and and, and the sort of green light that everything was 
was good and finished. It was a huge relief. I was put on furlough from my day job and had effectively just thought I could work on the book full time. So, um, so that was really helpful actually. And, and otherwise, I would have been doing a lot, a lot more late nights. We had a system um, when when I was on furlough that you know one of us would look after the kids in the, the morning or the afternoon, and then vice versa. So I had a good sort of three four hours solid uninterrupted time per day to do it and then my wife's actually from Germany so we went over to Germany in May and last year we took the ferry because there were no flights and I, because she had the support of all the family there I could effectively work on the book every day from you know nine till five. Wow which bit of Germany? So was, uh, Stuttgart near Stuttgart. Stuttgart. So, yeah her, wow. her, dad, her dad lives in Stuttgart and then um, her mum lives about 20 20 minutes outside the set you know in, in the countryside there. The, there was no football at the time either in the Bundesliga but are there lots of VFB yeah. Stuttgart fans there they're doing quite well aren't they yeah they're doing quite well and um, yeah it's, it's, it's you know they're, they're a popular club in the city there's also um, a small team called Stuttgart Kickers who um, they're in the god they were in the third division a couple of years ago but they've been relegated twice now so they're mm. they're, they're in the sort of you know the what, what's the word? Just you know, they're basically just in the back, backwaters of yeah. German football now, unfortunately. But um, I've been there, and that's that's a cool stadium. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a cool city. I really like it. If you were to write another book, because this lockdown situation, we're talking on February 11. It's probably not going to end for another two or three months. Um, have you got the bug? Are you working on book two? I am working on book two. Um, I I told myself that I would give myself till until January to, to do this, but I actually got I got kind of itchy fingers in um, November, so I came up with a couple of ideas. I went to Paul and Jane at Pitch, and they signed off on one of the ideas, and that's about the Intercontinental Cup. So Ooh. all about, for anyone listening who isn't aware of it, um, it's the, the cup that ran from 1960 to 2004, the champ- basically the, the game between the champions of South America and Europe, and now it's morphed into the FIFA Club World Cup and Bayern, uh, well, it might have actually finished by now, but Bayern were playing tonight in the final um, against Tigres of Mexico and they've won 1-0. So that's the kind of um, the modern sort of big FIFA tournament, but it started off as a bit more of a humble cup just between Europe and South American champions. So I'm writing all about the history of that. Do you think Manchester United fans will be interested in that book? Um, I think so. I mean... Possibly. I mean, you know, obviously the 1968 version, United played... Um, Estudiantes, against apparently Estudiantes, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it was quite violent and um, I've got, you know, I've got quite a few... Well, I've, I was actually writing that chapter over the last few days, so um, that's quite interesting to um, see, you know, all the kind of carnage that went on there. And then um, United won it in 99 against Palmeiras. So, yeah, and I'm speaking to someone about that tomorrow who went to Tokyo to watch that game. So Oh, great. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite, an interesting, um, quite an interesting cup. Loads of stories um, and, you know, all, you know, loads of legends that played in the games. And I'm really, I'm really enjoying the process. Well, it'll interest a whole host of English clubs, Nottingham Forest, Aston Villa, Liverpool. Uh, yeah, uh, Celtic, Northern Celtic, the border, they yes. um, played in it. I think the only the only probably downside from that is that you know none of them won it apart from apart from Manchester United in '99. The other the other British teams all lost. Is that so, right? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Liverpool lost it twice actually in '81 and '84. So not fond memories, I don't think, but still some very good stories to tell.
Does the book have a title? Uh, yes, it's called When Two Worlds Collide. Good. And we'll see it in so, September? Uh, it won't be out until next year. I'm I can't sure exactly wait that when, long. But... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll try <laughs> my best to speed it up. Uh, well, how old are the kids? Can't they help? Absolutely not. They can hinder me, though. Uh, they, can slow me, they can slow me down, but they can't help. I read the most amazing piece by Patrick Kidd in The Times, and he's, he's homeschooling in the mornings uh, with a 10-year-old and a 3-year-old, and the 3-year-old has a duck fit at 5 o'clock every afternoon without fail. God, I can't imagine homeschooling. My, mine are too young to, uh, oh, okay. to be homeschooled at the moment. And also, so they're half that's... German, so they are efficient kinder. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. They're at nursery a couple of days a week, so um, I get a couple of days' peace as well. And where in Britain are you? Uh, Manchester. Which bit? So it's, it's called Sale. I don't know if you know it. Yeah, I know it's, Sale. Um, yeah. They've got the, the rugby team there that's in the, uh, the Premier, mm-hmm. wherever the rugby Premier is, and um, I'm, about, I'm about four miles from Old Trafford here. So given the choice, are you a Red? Yes. I see. I grew up. Um, I grew up a United fan, and, and I went to games quite regularly. But then, uh, after the 2005 takeover, I kind of fell out of love with it a bit. And um, I think that's where my interest for other football came from. You know, from from that kind of moment, falling out of love with the uh, the team that you supported as a, as a kid, um, and then you know becoming more interested in you know South American football and and other stories like that. Well, you did get to see Juan Sebastian Veron at Manchester United. Did you see him in person? Yeah, so I saw him quite a few times and um, I absolutely loved him. Um, if you look at my Twitter handle, uh, actually, he's got Veron in there. He was, um, I was a huge fan of his. And shame, you know, he, he showed some amazing flashes, but it was just a shame that it didn't work out consistently for him. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his. Remind us of your Twitter handle. It's uh, at Wink Veron. Yes, it is. Why Wink so, uh, Veron? A uh, uh, Wink is a, it's just a, it's a, it's a really long story from uh, from years ago when I was a kid, a nickname, but um, we won't go into that. But yeah, the, the Veron <laughs> is from is is from him. Um, so yeah, I'm a I'm a, I'm a big fan. I, I, I love the way he played. Really I can't did. remember hey. if I saw him because I I went to Spurs around that time and. Uh, grandpa, my late grandpa Malcolm, was a Man U fan, and he'd, he'd come around for Friday night and go Cleberson, Jemba, Jemba, Miller, and just yeah. And it was it, they were dark, dark days. Some yeah. of the, some of those players. Yep, there was uh, that weird interregnum between the '99 team and the Rooney Ronaldo Tevez era. Where yeah, you had like you know Dave, likes of David Belly on, and yep. just yeah, there's some some terrible players. Um, there they yeah, <laughs> and Bebe, yet yeah, oh yeah. Oh, so what's your relationship to the 2008 Champions League winning United team? Did you celebrate United winning the third European Cup? Yeah, I went to um, I went to a friend's house to watch it, and, and mm. I did celebrate. But it's just it's just not the same. And it's it's like now when I you know I watched the game the other night against West Ham, and obviously I want them to do well. And there's certain players like you know the likes of Rashford. I'm not particularly. I don't lose sleep over it like I would have done in my younger days when. You know, I would have come home from Old Trafford and you know been in a bad mood for two days if we'd lost. You know, I've just I've kind of moved past that and and yeah, just have other other interests now. Really, the whole modern top level football just isn't isn't very exciting to me anymore. It's uh, that's why I've I've written a book about you know the history of Boca and and that's why I'm delving back into history for my for my latest book because I I, I find that more interesting personally. Interesting. The Club World Cup came in in two thousand and four. And United were taken over by they who shall not be named. 
uh, family. Well, actually, um, 2005. The first, yeah, the first ever FIFA Club World Cup was actually in 2000, and then there was a three-year break, and then it came back in 2005. Um, so the first one was in Rio, and, and United were actually there. That so, that was the one that, as I'm sure the listener will have said, I was on a ski trip, and I remember half following what was going on with United because they had to. Uh, forfeit the FA Cup defence because apparently yeah, it helped right. the FA if Man U played in the Club World Cup. Yeah, it helped the World Cup bid for 2006, wasn't huh. it? That ultimately, ultimately didn't um, didn't come off. But United played Palmeiras in Tokyo in the Intercontinental Cup in December '99. I think I'm not sure about the exact date. And then about six weeks later, we're in in Rio for this first ever. FIFA World Club Cup. Technically, they were world champions for about yeah for about six <laughs> weeks, and then um, they didn't cover themselves in glory in Rio. And um, they um, got absolutely battered by um, I think it was Vasco da Gama who had mm-hmm. Edmundo and Romario up front. So, so yeah, that was the start of the the FIFA Club World Cup, and then there was a gap, and then it, it really started properly in two thousand and five after the last Intercontinental Cup, which was in two thousand and four. Gosh. <laughs> And this is When Two Worlds Collide. The book will be out sometime in 2022. And it will join Blue and Gold Passion, a history of Boca Juniors, on the shelves of the Football Library. Were you upset that Santos beat Boca Juniors in the semi-final of Copa Libertadores a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I I, um, stayed up late to watch that and I wish I'd gone to bed. It was was terrible. Um, I'm not sure if you watched it, but it it wasn't... It wasn't a vintage performance by Boca. I think um, it's been a good year in, in in total. Or you know, this is obviously a, this this tournament should have been finished last year. So I say that you know, twenty twenty, Boca won the the league and then they won the Copa Maradona. Um, oh. So it, in in a way, it was a it was a good a good year, but it ended on a sour note really with this Copa Libertadores exit. It was quite a tame performance really, and. Um, and then Santos, you know, you, they, they can't even say they got beat by the winner because Santos then went and lost to Palmeiras. So, um, yeah, it wasn't a great way to end the tournament, really. No, I'm just looking at the team. Uh, I recognise one... Uh, Jara, I think I've had on Football Manager, but I recognise one name in the Boca first eleven, And, oh, look, there he is, uh, looking quite young. Uh, although that is probably a very recent picture of Carlos Tevez on the cover of the book. I think uh, if you, uh, he's, he's probably, um, he looks quite good actually at the moment. He's, uh, he looks quite young. He's had, uh, I think he's had his hair done, something done to his hair, but he, uh, he looks quite young, looks quite fresh. And um, up until recently, he's been playing quite well as well. You know, oh. even though he's, even though he's sort of 37 now, and uh, you know, at the tail end of his career, there's a lot of talk about him retiring. But um, you know, he's had a bit of an Indian summer uh, in the last year or so. Like Zlatan, isn't it amazing? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we're talking days after Tom Brady won his seventh Super Bowl ring. Federer is still going. Serena Williams is still going. Uh, who was I talking to the other day? Um, a fan of Bradford, and Bradford have got Clayton Donaldson, who's 37. So these it gives hope for people in their 30s. Just correct methodology and looking after yourself. Oh, admittedly, Tevez did miss six months of his career when he was at Man City. Yeah, and he um, he went to China for a bit of a holiday, didn't he? Where yep. he where he was earning something ridiculous, like I can't remember what the, the the figures were, but it was 
you know, something like £600,000 a week um, and he didn't bother. He just played golf and went to Disneyland, I think, for the whole year. So when he came back to Boca, he was quite poor for quite a while and, you know, a lot of the fans weren't very happy with him. They thought he was finished. And um, at the start of 2020, he just he was like a new man. He scored seven goals in seven games and then he scored the, the decisive goal on the last day of the season when Boca won the league. So he had a real Indian summer and yeah, but he, you know, he had to recover a bit because he, he took a year out in China. Just look at the squad, exclusively South American for, for Boca at the moment. Uh, there's the number six who has just signed. Are you excited that Marcus Rojo is in a Boca Juniors shirt? Yeah, I think that's a really good signing for, um, for, for Boca. You know, he's, he's never really kind of convinced me in a Premier League level. Um, you know, he had, he had his moments, but... I think going to a club like Boca now, I think he's going to be a brilliant signing. Um, just when, when you watch the Santos game, the second leg, you could you could just imagine someone like him in there just with a bit more passion. You know, he's a, he's a good player, obviously, as well, but I think they were missing something like that. And, you know, he's only 30 now, so um, he's going to be, you know, he's coming up to 31. So he's still, he's still got another good two or three years left in him at that level and uh, maybe even more. So I think it's a brilliant signing. Well, and certainly for Manchester United to get him off the wage bill. And obviously, the talent's there. But I think maybe going back to Argentina will help. And then perhaps he'll go to Italy. I had thought he would go to Inter Milan after Ashley Young, Christian Eriksen, Victor Moses, Romelu Lukaku. Milan is kind of a halfway house for players who leave the Premier League and may be owned by Mino Raiola. Um, <laughs> they seem to be doing quite well, though, don't they? I mean, you know, even... You know, Darmian is another one from that was for United, and and yeah, you said Young, and they, they, they all seem to be doing quite well over there. So um, very good manager. Maybe it's yeah, exactly. Maybe it's something to do with the the the, the mismanagement of Old Trafford over the last five or six years. You know, more to do with that than than their quality as players. Boca Juniors, not Juniors. Why why isn't it Boca Juniors? Well, the, the Juniors actually because. It was a it was an it was a nod to the influence of the British in the game in Argentina in the early days, and also because one of the founders was learning English at the time, so they they decided to to put the you know the English name of Juniors on there. So um, that's where it comes from. In the in the early days, so uh, it was a, a Scottish person who was who was deemed to be the, the sort of father of football in Argentina or organised football especially, and there was a massive British influence in those. In those early days as well, you know, most of the players were of British descent and most of the teams were made up of, of, of Brits. And then, you know, it slowly kind of began to take over when clubs like Boca Juniors, River Plate, Racing, Independiente, San Lorenzo were founded by immigrants, effectively. And then, you know, the kind of local scene began to take over the British the British players, but that's where the, where the juniors comes from. Thank you. I didn't realise Argentina, like America, is a kind of a mongrel immigrant nation. I read a lot of Angels with Dirty Faces. I'm sure you've heard of that book. Yes. It's on the shelves Absolutely. of the football library. And uh, unfortunately, I spoke to Jonathan Wilson a couple of days before Maradona passed away. Uh, so we didn't get to extol Maradona. But he does talk about a statue, a particular statue... Um, which looks like an urch- a street urchin with a football, and it looks exactly like Maradona. Uh, he did a Guardian podcast a few days after he died, and and he was brilliant there in, in talking about Maradona and you know what he means to what he means to people in Argentina. So um, so yeah, he's he's great. Uh, Angels with dirty faces is 
is, is it's like to me it's like the bible of Argentine football you know it's anytime I need to know something or anytime I'm starting writing a piece or a book or anything I will always go there first as a as a kind of starting point yeah I did ask him when when did you choose to stop because this is a project that like a tapestry could have gone on and on and on and on and the edit would have been I'm reading the fifth Harry Potter that could have done with an edit and what we're seeing with angels <laughs> with dirty faces just just kick the first 150 pages off angels with dirty faces that's the edit he said um and I, I I do recommend that as an introduction to Argentinian football but history of Boca Juniors how much does that well by necessity but how much does that take in the other Argentinian clubs there will be a lot of stories in there you know from when Boca have played the other teams and you know there's a lot of stuff in there about Boca's rivalry rivalry with River Plate but uh but it is, you know, it is very, very Boca heavy. Um, but you will, you know, if you read the book or if you've read the book, you will, you will learn things about other clubs as well. And I like to talk about Argentinian football as a whole, just to kind of, and, and also what's going on in Argentinian society. So it's been a, a, a kind of tumultuous century, last, you know, in the, the 20th century in Argentina, um, when, when I'm talking about Boca's history. So I think it's really important to talk about the history of the country and what's going on in the country, what's going on in the football, to give context as well. You know, you can't just you can't just say that oh, in this year Boca won this cup, and then in the, you know in the next year they won this cup. You kind of have to almost frame what's going on by what's going on around because football doesn't exist in a bubble, does it? Yeah, that's certainly what John Wilson said. Football is an integral part of that nation, even more so than Britain. When did Eva Peron live? Was it the fifties? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. it and, was. And uh, I'm just thinking about. I think she. I think it was. She died in. Um, just have a look when she, when she. When it was that she died. Yeah, she died in fifty two. Yeah, died in fifty two. Um, and it was the musical Evita was mid seventies, and that coincides with the two consecutive Libertadores wins by Boca in which years? That was seventy seven and seventy eight. Yes, good. Um, who did they have in that team? So, some of the players, Ruben Sunier, he was um, a, a local lad who who um, was very sort of big part of that team. They've got you know Pancho Sa as well. He won he won the Copa Libertadores with Independiente. I think he won four in a row, and then he signed for Boca, and then he won two in a row wow. with Boca. So effectively, effectively he won um, he won six Copa Libertadores in a row, which is just an absolutely outrageous. You know, when you think when you think about it like that, and then did he um, play in the '78 World Cup as well? I don't think he was in the '78 World Cup. No, not what? that I'm aware of. Wow. <laughs> um, Hugo Gatti as well was the goalkeeper. He was um, he was a bit of a crazy character. Um, he he was a kind of player that were, a goalkeeper that would come out of his goal. You know, you, you, you look at the likes of Neuer now, who are kind of people say that he's reinvented goalkeeping, but there's people for years in South America have been coming out of the goal to get involved in the play. Um, so, yeah, he was he was a big part of that team as well. Um, and the coach was Juan Carlos Lorenzo. He, before Carlos Bianchi came in, in the uh, late 90s, he was Boca's, probably Boca's most famous coach and, and the coach that has won the most with the club. Mario Kempes, well, who did Kempes play for? Kempes played for River Plate. He did play for Boca as well. Kempes played for Rosario Central. Um, so when when the '78 World Cup came around, you know he scored most of his goals in um, in in that stadium for Rosario Central. 
and that's where he made his name. And then he went to Valencia. Then he was he was back at River Plate. Sorry, I, I said before, did he play for Boca? I'm confusing him because he played against Boca when Maradona was there. So, um, but yeah, in, interestingly, he was he was I think he was the only player in the '78 World Cup squad that didn't play in Argentina at the time. He was like the one exception. They wanted to pick a, a squad full of people who played in Argentina, but he he was you know doing so well at Valencia and, and so important to the team that they, they got him in even though he played abroad. And then he whispered to Ardiles and Ricky Villa, you should join me in Europe, and they did. Leopoldo Luque scored goals, Bertoni, Hausman, Passarella, Tarantini, those are the scorers uh, of, yeah, the, of the Argentina World Cup. I, I imagine that there were games at Boca's Stadium at the 78 World Cup. Um, I don't actually know, to be honest, I don't think so. Just having a quick look. Uh, I I yeah. I agree. It, it was at the yeah, Monumental. Yeah, the Monumental was like the the main the main one, and 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 Boca Stadium is used for the odd national team game, but the home you know the the sort of nominal home ground for the Argentine national team is is River Stadium. So that is the the seventies, and then of course the exodus started, and you've got all kinds of Argentinians going over in the eighties and nineties. Can you give an example? Not the end of the nineties, but. Argentines in the 80s, I don't know, perhaps one who went on to become the player of his era and is on the cover of Blue and Gold Passions? <laughs> yeah, Maradona, he, um, you know, obviously players did go did go to Europe in that era, but it, was, it wasn't as common as, as it is nowadays, you know. So Maradona going over to Europe was quite a big deal. And, you know, it was really only the, the biggest stars that would, would end up in Europe. Because in that, of the three-foreign rule. Possibly, and I just think I just don't think football was was a, as a global game as it is nowadays. You know, you know, back 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 then, sort of before the mid nineties, and you know, the likes of the Premier League and the Champions League really really kicked in. You know, football was you might you might see the the World Cup or the European Championships on TV, but football wasn't really a global sport in that in the sense it is now, where as I said before, you know, you can click on YouTube and you can watch games from all different corners of the globe whereas whereas back then it was much more localised and you know you look at the teams that play in the Copa Libertadores and you know I mean even look at the teams in the Premier League era at the start of the Premier League era you know that I'd say nine out of ten players are from UK and Ireland you know it's it's only really took off in the last sort of 20-25 years and Maradona was one of the earlier ones and, and one of the more famous ones from Boca to go abroad and First went to Barcelona for two years, didn't really work out. But then he was at Napoli for seven years, and that's where that's where he really, obviously, made his name. And quite quite the famous story about about um, how things worked out in Napoli. But he was revered there, and then few, a few years out of the game with problems with with drugs, and he had a couple of suspensions. And then he he ended his career at Boca with two years in between ninety five and ninety seven. wasn't wasn't the the best years for him on the pitch, but um, I think you know a lot of Boca fans, and uh, including a couple that I spoke to for the book, were were absolutely delighted that you know they could get to see him in the flesh, and you know it was it was a huge deal that he came back to the club, even if he was way past his best. But well, obviously, because having read the obituaries, I haven't seen the film yet, but copies of Diego Maradona will be in the football library. This is the. Asif Kapadia and James Gay Reese film about his life that um, makes clear that there's Diego, the boy from the street, and Maradona, the superstar yep. who was, I think John Wilson said, from 83 to 87, 
He was the best player in the world. I guess Van Basten took over from him. But um, Maradona was one of seven uh, of the 1986 World Cup squad. Boruchega was at Nantes. Passarella was at Fiorentina. Valdano was at Madrid. There was a guy at Lecce and Elche and one at America. Um, how many Boca Juniors players won World Cup winners medals in 1986? There weren't too many. I think it was only one or two. That's um, really good. Name them both. Oh, God, name them both. Now you're putting me on the spot. Um, Alati Koichea. Yeah, Alati Koichea is one. Oh, God. <laughs> the other one, this will be one that I'll, will, I will really kick myself for not knowing. His first name was Carlos. Carlos. Um, oh, God. A burrowing animal perhaps found in South America, but with an A as the last letter instead of an R. Carlos, uh, Carlos, Carlos Tapieri, was it? Tapieri, yeah, yeah, he was the number yeah. 20, so I guess he didn't play so much. Um, but that is the... Yeah. So um, what were Boca doing uh, in the 80s? Were they uh, trading off the Maradona fame? Were they getting some top players at the time? Not a lot, no, not a lot. Well, the 80s was a terrible time for Boca, um, and it wasn't helped that River went and won the Copa Libertadores and the Intercontinental Cup in 86, but... Boca had a really awful decade, nearly went out of business in 1985, and it's not an exaggeration to say that there were, you know, days or, or you know, at most weeks of actually going completely bump. Um, there was a financial crisis, I think, I think a global one in the early 80s, but, you know, it was definitely quite stark in South America. You know, when Maradona was still at Boca before he left in, in uh, July 82, they took him on a ridiculous tour because they needed to raise money effectively. So they, they, they would play games in the league and then they would play, you know, midweek friendlies or they'd, they'd basically miss a couple of league games or postpone them and they'd go on, they'd go on tours to places like Hong Kong, Guatemala, God. Uh, Malaysia. It sounds like Mozart. It's ridiculous, honestly. I think, I think they were in Africa at one point as well. And, um, I mean, it was quite common for South American teams to do that back in the day. Um, I think more in the sort of 60s, like in Pele's era, but... But yeah, they went on this ridiculously, ridiculously exhausting whirlwind tour. They went on a tour of China, um, and then you know they, they came back to play some league games, and it's just ridiculous, you know, when you think about it. But um, the club really needed the money, and they were in such a bad state that they nearly went out of business in the in like say in '85. There was one game where they played a home game and they lost the coin toss about the kits, but they they, they didn't have any other kits. I don't think they could afford them, so they. They basically all took to the pitch in, in white T-shirts where they'd had the numbers written on in marker pens. And um, and then at the end of the game, you know, I think there was a bit of rain and then there was, they were sweating as well. And all the, number from the, all the numbers from the marker pens were was like running, you know, running down the shirts and, and it faded badly. And it was a real sign of, of the sort of decline of Boca. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was a really bad era. But they, they, they had a new president came in 85 and, and he sort of started to turned the ship around a bit, he paid off some of the debts and Boca won a couple of, I would say probably minor um, international trophies towards the end of the 80s, won a league title in the early 90s with Batistuta who was there for a season and um, it wasn't really until uh, Mauricio Macri came in as the president in 95 and then he appointed Carlos Bianchi as the head coach in 98 and that's where the kind of more of the modern era of Boca has, has really gone from strength to strength and they won they won everything basically in that era 
So, as we will see, how many Boca players went with Argentina to the World Cup in Italy? Oh, in 1990? Yeah. <laughs> you, you really put Is it spot, you know. zero, one or two? I'll go for one. Name him. <laughs> <laughs> Simon. Juan Simon. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he, um, yeah. he was playing in France just before. He, um, and he went back to Argentina to, to try and get himself into the, the reckoning for the World Cup. But... Yeah, it's funny, you know, when you look at the when you look at some of those earlier squads in those days, you know, even when Boca were winning a shed load of trophies, they they didn't really have a, and I don't know why, um, they didn't really have a massive kind of footprint in the, the in the national team. You know, when you look at the World Cup squads, they didn't really make up a massive amount of them, which you know is probably quite surprising. Very so. Alatica chair had moved to Racing. He'd already jumped ship, and very. Strangely, how many in 1998 were at Boca? Yeah, you're going to have to help me out it here again. It is zero. Uh, zero. Lots of, lots of Argentinians playing in Italy. Ayala and uh, Neres and Sini, Simeone, Batigol, I believe his name was. Veron was at Sampdoria. Um, but yes, there's a, there was a minority Argentinian club side because Argentinians had realised that the money, especially post-Bosman uh, or in the Bosman era, was to be made in Europe. Now, did that help Boca hinder them or didn't it matter? Well, I mean, it was definitely it was definitely a, a, a bit of a hindrance because, you know, I mentioned Carlos Bianchi before. He, he's the, the coach in Boca's history that's won the most. He's won, you know, he's won, you know, multiple league titles, Copa Libertadores several times. You know, they won the... Intercontinental Cup as well in 2000 and in 2003 and you know during that period where he, he was so successful he left he left at one point then came back and then ended up leaving again permanently in 2004 I think it was one of the major problems for him was that he didn't agree with uh, the, the board's transfer strategy which was effectively to you know almost fatten up the you know fatten up the pig so to speak before you you know, before you uh, before you eat so, it, and you know, yeah. get these get these players that you know you, you get them in from the youth team. You, you play them for a couple of seasons, give them a bit of profile, and then you sell them for you know massive profit. Um, so this was really becoming a problem in the sort of early two thousands. Talking about the Intercontinental Cup, you know, it finished in two thousand and four, and after after forty three versions, it was twenty two twenty one to South America. So that kind of shows you that. Okay, you know some of the European teams might not have taken it as seriously at some stages, but South American football was on a par at one point with European football. But it was only really at the turn of the century that it, it really started to the, the gap became started to become really sort of noticeable, if you like. The money on offer in Europe with the Champions League and you know the likes of the Premier League and the TV deals that were being done, they, they just couldn't compete and. Also, the, the economies in South America are, are quite volatile, so it, it just leads to the, the star players just going going to to Europe. And, and I think now we're seeing it's you know it's getting the players are getting younger and younger. You know, at least then. I mean, you look at Riquelme; he went to Barcelona in two thousand and two. He made his debut six years earlier. You know, two years before he went to Europe, he'd played against Real Madrid and absolutely ran the show. And you know, now players are going after six games, not six years. So. It's becoming more and more of a problem, but 
you know, then, you know, you know, Tevez, obviously we talked about him before, he, he ended up leaving. Uh, Raquel May went, Martin Palermo left for Europe in 2001. You know, Eva Benega as well, he he played, I think he played less than a year, less than a calendar year, and then he was whisked off to Valencia. Fernando Gago, you know, Nicolas um, Berdiso, Nicolas Gaetan, you know, all these players, they have one good season and then they, they get whisked away and you, you have to replace them. And that's not, not easy. It kind of just all plays into this idea in Argentine football that the you know the short term thinking players you know players don't stick around for long, the managers don't stick around for long, and it's just kind of like a vicious cycle. 